Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Ryan, for uh, giving me the privilege to preach and particularly for reading that passage. I had no clue how to pronounce most of those names or places, so I am so thrilled you read that, and I don't have to anymore. You know, I, I know it's Mother's Day, but I do have one little tiny axe to grind. I, I, I tend to watch ESPN occasionally, and I am waiting one day for one of these big 380-pound linemen that's got blood streaming down, and they bring the camera to him, and he goes, hi, Dad. Have you ever seen that? You never see it. What do they do? Hi, Mom, gives you some idea of the impact these women have had on these kind of giants of the world in that sense. You know, I think maybe in the evangelical world, we've been a little guilty sometimes of talking about maybe some of the restrictions that we find in the Scriptures related to women in the days of the biblical time. So this morning, I want to take just a little moment and talk about some of the great women of the Bible both throughout history and in the text itself. So I kind of want to start with a little history lesson for those of you who kind of like church history a little bit. By way of introduction, let me mention a few women in church history that have made a significant impact. Perpetua was numbered among the first Christian martyrs, by the way. She was born about 182, and so by the second century, beginning to see the conflict that was emerging already at the end of the first century and the end of the Testaments beginning to intensify as the Roman world recognized this impact that Christianity was having. She was a young, married, upper-class Carthaginian and a recent mother who was arrested by the Romans and thrown into prison to be fed to the wild beast. She and her four companions were preparing for baptism against the emperor's clear edict. Hers, by the way, are the first extant woman's writings in the Christian church. Her book or her writings are called The Passion of Perpetua. Now, I'm an author, and I want to tell you something very interesting. Her book is still in print to this day. Now, if you know much about books in print, and particularly Christian books in print, they go out of print within two or three years of the next catalog. But you can actually still buy this book and read it because it's fairly fascinating. Many historians believe that she literally revolutionized literature by inventing what we now call the diary. Significantly, in a day when most people felt that the gods were distant and inaccessible, she actually spoke of a personal experience with the divine, and she emphasized listening to the inner voice of the Holy Spirit. She focused on victory despite the external evidence of her death as a martyr. Susanna Wesley, perhaps you've heard that name, those of you who may be of a Methodist background, 
the mother of John and Charles Wesley. It is widely known as the mother of Methodism. She was born January 20th, 1669 in London. She, ladies, was the 25th of 25 children. Then her father, who was a dissenter from the established church in England, began to lead her in a more evangelical tradition. She herself was the mother of 19, many of whom have preceded her in death. She educated her children, and when they saw her apron over her head, I guess that's the only solitude you can get in the house of 19 kids, they knew that she was praying for each child by name. Her husband was absent the home for several different lengthy stretches, one over a minor dispute, another over some bills that weren't paid, and she wrote this letter to her absent husband. I am a woman, but I'm also the mistress of a large family. And though the superior charge of the souls contained in it lies upon you, yet in your long absence I cannot look but look upon every soul you leave as under my charge, a talent committed to me under a trust. I'm not a man and I'm not a minister. Yet as a mother and a mistress I felt I ought to do more than I had yet done. I resolved to begin with my own children, in which I observed this following method. I take such a proportion of time as I can spare every night to discourse with each child apart. On Monday, I talk with Molly, on Tuesday with Hetty, Wednesday with Nancy, Thursday with Jackie, Friday with Patty, Saturday with Charles. If you know anything about the Methodism or Methodist Church, you'll know that it was known for its disciplines. So guess where John and Charles Wesley, who've written many of the hymns that you love to sing, inherited this, the, the desire they have for the spiritual disciplines. Now, uh, to be equal with Baptist and the crew, Lottie Moon was born December the 12th, 1840, in Virginia. She stood a mighty four feet three inches tall, but was a giant in the early missionary movement. She spent 40 years in China and died of starvation on Christmas Day because she was giving her allotment of food to the hungry Chinese. Her book, Send the Light, Lottie Moon's Letters and Other Writings, was instrumental in founding the Women's Missionary Union, and the first Christmas offering she initiated collected over $3,315. Doesn't sound like a mighty goal, does it? But it was enough to send three full-time missionaries in that day. I can remember my own mother collecting coins all year for the Lottie Moon offering. In fact, some of you have enough history with Southern Baptists will know that one year they had these little, uh, almost like coin collection books where she was collecting dimes all year. I wish I still had that collection book because they were all mercury silver dimes who would be worth even more to this day, but my mother saw that as a necessity and taught us that those offerings were priority for our family. Now let's turn to a few interesting observations from Scripture. So this is all in preface to getting to Deborah. When one considers the patriarchal culture worldwide in the time that the Bible was written, the Bible stands unique in affirming the importance of motherhood and the ministry of women. So you might want to list some of these down. They'll be coming up on the, 
PowerPoint as well. Two biblical books are actually named for the women who are the focal point of the narrative. Ruth, a Moabitess who features in the lineage of Jesus, by the way. When you begin Matthew, you're going to begin with the genealogy. Genealogies were important in tracing lineage in that day and almost always were related to the men. In fact, if you read Luke's version of it, it will be the son of, the son of, the son of. But in Matthew's version, interestingly, since he is the most Jewish of the gospel writers, you have not only Ruth, but Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. Unusual to find that listing of mothers or women as a part of that lineage. The Esther is the second book named for a woman, a Jewish woman, who saved the nation as she risked her life by addressing her husband, the Persian king Ashahiris, who had been tricked into issuing an edict condemning the Jews. Many of you remember the most famous line from there, for such a time as this. Who knows who out of this congregation God will be calling for such a time as this. The first message of the soon coming Messiah was communicated to a woman, Mary, by an angelic messenger. She is used with a phrase that's important in Jewish life, the favored one, and the angel affirms that the Lord is with her, Luke 1, 26. Her cousin, Elizabeth, is the first person in the New Testament era declared to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Luke 1, 41. The first mention of prophecy in the Old and New Testaments are women prophetesses. Miriam, the, brother, the, the sister of Aaron and Moses, led the women in praise uttered prophecy which is incorporated in second in sacred scripture you'll find in Exodus chapter 15 verses 20 and 21 in the new testament era it's Anna the prophetess who after the death of her husband never left the temple day or night serving the lord Luke 2:36 now while no biblical book is written by a woman the words of numerous women are contained in Scripture. Miriam, Hagar, Sarah, Huldah, Deborah, Elizabeth, and Mary, just to name a few. Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, is actually the first to refer to God as Elroy, the name that means you are the God who sees. Genesis 16, 13, you remember her issue as she was cast out of the home because of the jealousy of Abram's wife, and she, in her wandering, declares, you are Elroy, the God who sees my suffering. Huldah plays a significant role in the revival during the reign of King Josiah. Now, Josiah's father Ammon was a particularly evil king and the things of the Lord in that day were in great disrepair so in the refurbishment of the temple the book of the law was found and the priest Hilkiah brings the book to the king's secretary Shaphan who conveys it then immediately to the king guess what the king does well in fact why don't you turn to second chronicles we might as well take a look at this particular story because it is a fascinating story in the old testament so the king sends five of his personal messengers, 
including his secretary and the priest, seeking the prophet Huldus, excuse me, prophetess Huldah. He wants to get her advice about the books. This is found, by the way, also in 2 Kings chapters 11 through 14. She's called upon to verify the writing. So let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, and we'll go down and we'll begin about verse, um, it starts in verse 22. So Hilkiah and those who were the king, I get Ryan up here to read this, pronounce these uh, phrases for me here, went to hold of the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tekoath, the son of Hazari, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem at the second quarter, which by the way was near the temple. And it suggests that probably she was somewhat affluent. And they spoke to her regarding this. She said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Now she's addressing who? These messengers who are going back to the king. So this prophetess is now going to be the vessel through whom God actually addresses the king of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I bringing evil on this place and inhabitants, even all the curses that are written in the book they have read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me, and they have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with the words of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place, and it won't be quenched. Now, she's referring back to Deuteronomy, the passage where, you remember, Israel is taken out, and, and, and on one mountain there are the curses that happen if we disobey the Word of God, on the other are the blessings. And so now they've discovered that book, and they begin to read the Word of God again, and they see the, the what happens when a people disobeys the Word of God, but if they obey, then there are the blessings. So she finishes the message from the Lord, but to the king of Judah who sent you, inquire of the Lord, and you will say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words you've heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before our God. When you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, because you humbled yourself before me, you tore your clothes and you wept before me, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Now what's intriguing about this passage? Well, at least two significant things. Not only was she a prophetess, but she was a renowned Old Testament scholar. When they discovered the book in the temple, they had literally a generation had never seen or heard the Word of God. The king himself, a young king who was nurtured by his own mother, who wanted a godly king on the throne, they immediately say, this woman will know if this is authentic. They had to authenticate the Word, first of all. And then as she is authenticating the Word, the Lord himself uses her as an instrument, a vessel through whom the message of this prophecy is delivered to the king of Israel. Of particular interest, many people find that Hannah, mentioned by our pastor, the mother of Samuel, is seen as the image of a godly mother. She was a woman of prayer who dedicated her child to the Lord even prior to his birth. I know that many of you ladies have perhaps followed that same process. By the way, there's an interesting little note here. If I were to ask you this morning, what is your favorite or best-known passage related to women, you might well say Proverbs 31, the Proverbs woman. Well, turn to Proverbs 31 a moment, and I'm not going to read that whole passage to you, but I want you to remember what it's about. 
She is praised for her integrity. She is praised for her industry. She is praised for her compassion for the poor. The wisdom of her teaching, she's praised for that. Uh, Not only that, in two other instances, Proverbs affirms the importance of the instruction of a mother having equal strength and ability of that of the man, 1.8 and 6.20. It is noteworthy that Proverbs 31 begins with this note. 31.1, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. Now, we're not sure who King Lemuel is. Most of the ancients believed it was King Solomon, that it was Solomon himself. And so Solomon, if that is the case, or whoever it is in this instance, said, this is what my mother taught me. Then he goes on, if you want to read the text reading up to the Proverbs 31 passage, it primarily concerns the issue of sexual purity, uh, abuse of alcohol, and taking care of those most needy in the context. Now, isn't it interesting that when he finishes with those three things he was taught by his mother, the fact that he needed to make sure that he was pure in his sexual relationships, and he needed to make sure as the king that he was always a person of sobriety, and that he ought to care for those who were least fortunate and most needy, then he begins this whole description of a worthy woman. Is it possible that it is Solomon? I think it very well could be. The ancients believe so. And it may well be that not only is he giving the advice that she gave him, the oracle to the wisest king, but then he goes on to affirm what motherhood looked like in his life. So the impact that it could have had upon Solomon. Of particular interest is the compassion demonstrated by our Lord to women. We can think of the widow of Nain, the woman with the issue of blood, the woman taken in adultery, the widow with the might who was used as an example of true giving. His compassion for his earthly mother were among the concerns addressed as he bled out on the cross. My wife, throughout her ministry, has often drawn attention to a little phrase that most of us Bible scholars, particularly the male version, probably missed in the book of Luke, so I'm going to invite you to turn quickly to Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We will get back to Judges, but I want to give you a little bit of an overview here or some of the little tidbits that you may have missed. So Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, he began going around thinking of Jesus from one city to the village to another proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Okay, you with me? We got the early disciples, and this is Jesus' ministry. Now listen to this. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from out of the seven demons had gone. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, women that is, who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So it is fascinating that in the first mention here in Luke of these disciples traveling with Jesus as he declared the kingdom also mentions that there were some women. Now, obviously, the some women couldn't travel with him the way the 12 did because it would have been inappropriate for these women 
to travel with his entourage of men, but they are somewhere in the process of following Jesus' ministry and supporting out of their own financial means. It's not the last mention in Luke. In fact, I want you to turn over to chapter 23, and you'll find that if you kind of follow the story throughout, we're going to come now to we started with the beginning of his ministry. Now we're going to take a little leap and go to the end of his ministry, and you're going to find this same phrase. So Luke 23, 27. So we're now with Simon bearing the cross, to put you in the context. So we're on the way now to Golgotha, and following him was a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting. Now look on down at verse 49. And all of his acquaintances, I'm in Luke 23 still, and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. Now down to verse 55. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Turn over to chapter 24, verse 10. Now there was Mary Magdalene, Joanna the mother, and Mary the mother of James, also the other women who were with them telling these things to the apostles, down to verse 22. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. Had you ever paid attention to the fact, I hadn't until my wife began teaching this with ladies across the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, that along with the early disciples, which we clearly know about, there were women who were always involved with the life and ministry of Jesus, particularly in their financial support. And most pastors will tell you that the most generous givers of time and money in the life of the church have always been the women. So it wasn't the case of Jesus as these women followed the twelve and somehow followed his ministry and supported it from their own financial means. And isn't it interesting that not only was a woman involved in the first announcement of the coming Messiah, it was the women who were the very first witnesses to the resurrection. They were the ones in the garden early the next morning. So women were not only the first to hear the Messiah's birth, but they were among the first witnesses. Perhaps the most famous of the women of the Bible is the one we've mentioned in Judges. So go ahead and turn back to that text. And since the pastor read it so well, I do not have to try to pronounce those words. And we'll just tell you the story in narrative fashion and take some of the lessons that we should learn from Deborah. Deborah's one of the major judges. In that day, a judge was not what we think, not robes sitting behind a bench and our Supreme Court justices or judges in that way. They were charismatic military leaders in the period before the kings. Now, the period of the judges is pretty important because it has a, a regular cycle, not unlike the cycle of our life sometimes, and that was that Israel sinned. And then out of their sin, they would repent because of the punishment that was coming upon them. And God would then send a deliverer, a judge, a military charismatic leader. We know many of those, like Gideon and Samson, and we know uh, of their exploits. But he would send a judge, and this judge would deliver them, usually from the Canaanites or whoever 
the oppressors were at that time. And then, of course, after deliverance, they'd sin again, and the cycle would repeat. So the judge just before Deborah is Ehud. So now we find a place that she is not only the only female judge, but she is the only judge to be declared to be a prophet or a prophetess in this case. And she is actually the only judge that does indeed have a judicial ministry in Israel. You'll see it as we kind of look at the text. So Ehud dies. Israel does evil again, and God punishes them by giving them into the hand of the Canaanites. Jabin was king, and Sisera was the commander of his army. And Israel cries out to the Lord for help. So go back to Judges chapter 4, verse 3. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for this king and his commander had 900 iron chariots, and he had oppressed the sons of Israel severely now for 20 years. So we had gone through a period after Ehud's death that this oppression has occurred and it has become onerous to them. So God's answer to Israel's prayer is Deborah. It's interesting, by the way, throughout the Old Testament and the New, and also in our life today, is that leaders often emerge because of the prayer of God's people. You remember Moses, for example, it says they had been crying out to the Lord. And so today, if you're a leader in any context, or if you're wanting to be involved in it, guess what? It's because there are people praying for leadership in the life of the church, in the life of the evangelical world, in the life of our nation. So the answer to their prayer was Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapideth. Did I pronounce that right? I just scroll and went out and know him. Her regular service as a leader was to render judgment. So she was already ministering in the context of this. Verse 4, a prophetess was judging Israel at that time. Now how? Verse 5, she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came to her for judgment. So the Lord had given her particular wisdom so that she sat as did the elders often in the Old Testament, or even the kings in the gate, and there would be a dispute among the people of Israel, and they would come to her to render judgment because the Lord had given her such wisdom. So obviously, when this military need arises, the first thing they come to is they come to Deborah, who had been given this leadership role, and she summoned Barak and gives him a message from the Lord. So she is also a messenger from the Lord. So we find it in verse 6. Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded you, go and march to Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. I'm going to draw out Sisera. Now notice the eyes in this. They all refer to the Lord. So the Lord is communicating to Israel through this woman judge, this prophetess, and all the way through it's what God's going to do, not what she's going to do, not even what the commander's going to do. He says, I'm going to draw out this. Look at this. I will give him into your hand. The end of verse 7, Barak, however, not very bold here, says, now if you go with me, then I'll go, but if you don't go, I won't go either. It gives you an impression of their confidence in Deborah. He, he realized, even though he's a military commander, should have been the one in the lead in this, he realizes 
her authentic authority with the people of Israel and says, if you don't go, I'm not going, but if you'll go with me, I will. So in the midst of that, she agrees to go, but she explains that he will receive no honor since the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Verse 9. By the way, that statement does not demean the role of women in this story. It glorifies the deliverance of the Lord through whatever vessel he chooses. So he, she's not saying, well, you should have done this because you're a man, and if you, if you don't go of your own uh, volition, then you're not going to get any honor because he's doing it through the hands of a woman. She's a woman who brings this pronouncement. So it simply is saying that these women became the instruments of God's activity in Israel's life in this moment of crisis. You see, God always likes to use the ordinary. And that's all of us sitting in the congregation. Paul came to the same realization, didn't he? He prayed several times over that the Lord would remove the thorn that was in his side, and yet God says not to. And Paul begins to celebrate that in his own weakness, in his own limitations, that he gloried further because God himself received the glory. And you're going to find this in the song that she writes in chapter 5 in just a moment. So the armies assembled, verse 10, and the forces of the Canaanites with these 900 iron chariots come, but the commander flees, obviously, because Deborah assures the Israel that the Lord is with them. Look at verse 14. Her message is not about military might. Uh, so down in verse, uh, the Lord has gone out before you, verse 14, middle of it. Barak was down from the Mount Tabor with his men following him. And the Lord himself routed Sisera. So she points again to the Lord's activity in the midst of this. And the, Mainanite, the, the mighty Canaanite army was uh, scattered everywhere. Sisera fled on foot and was later killed by Jael, the wife of Heber, fulfilling the prophecy that God would deliver through the hands of a woman. Now Deborah, much like Miriam composes a song of victory to the Lord. Then Deborah chapter 5, and Barak the son of Abinahim sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I, to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked, the heavens dripped, even the clouds dripped water, the mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the days of Shagmar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, travelers went round about. The peasantry had ceased, they ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, rose, until I rose a mother in Israel. Did you hear the song? It's all praise to the Lord. In fact, she doesn't negate her role. She said the people had ceased work until you called me Deborah. Is it interesting how she identifies herself? Are you surprised? She could have identified herself as a judge. God did. She could have identified herself as a prophetess. God did. 
She prefers, however, to identify herself as a, a mother, a mother in Israel. You see, whatever her calling or whatever your calling, your identity relates not only to your fatherhood in terms of your parenting, if you're a man, or your motherhood, but in your relationship to God and His people. And so she sees her role in Israel reflecting her role as a mother in the home. Isn't it interesting? Uh, pastor's been teaching on Wednesday nights and another a shameless plug. If you're not plugged into Wednesday night, you need to. It's one of my favorite times of the week. But he's preaching through, teaching through First, Second Timothy on the church, and and one of the things he noticed was that the pastor's role in the church is what equivalent to a husband's role in the home. In fact, he, he's given that kind of reality that he can't be the pastor if he doesn't understand how to be the father in the home. Well, guess what? Her prophetess role and her role as a judge reflect her wisdom in her home. And so she refers to herself as a mother in Israel. What's interesting in the text is that all the glory goes to God. Remember what she said when the military commander says, I'm not going if you don't go? said the glory is going to go to God. So in the song, guess what? She glorifies the Lord. She talks about the majesty of the Lord all in the midst of this process. But there are two other things I don't know if you noticed. She says, when the leaders lead, verse 2, and when the people volunteer. Has anything changed in the life of the church today? It's when the leaders lead and the people volunteer that the church becomes the instrument that God uses. So she sings in this. She doesn't negate the role of leaders. In fact, she goes on and says, the people were dissident until I, Deborah, was called up. So she was a volunteer in a sense that the Lord had called. And when she took her role of leadership and the people were followers in the sense that the people volunteered, then Israel was delivered by the Lord. So what lessons can we learn from Deborah? Now, this is not just for you ladies, so men, you can get your pens out now, because all of these principles are from God's Word. First of all, she was an answer to Israel's prayer. Whatever God calls you to do in the life of the church, you are actually answering somebody else's prayer. Somebody's been praying that God would raise up someone, whether it's to work among our children or, to, or perhaps to fill the rest of the seats in our choir, whatever. There's people that are praying that God would begin to do those things in the life of this church. And when God impresses that upon you and you step up and say, Pastor, here I am. Use me. Lord, use me. You're the answer to somebody's prayer. Secondly, she showed wisdom and knowledge in giving judgment. The reason they came to her in the midst of this time is she had already proven the wisdom and knowledge that she had given, perhaps the reason that King Lemuel, if that was indeed Solomon, uh, oftentimes writes about, at the very end of his Proverbs, his, his own mother, this woman of renown, was because the teaching of a woman was valued by the writer of Proverbs. Thirdly, she encouraged others in leadership. Chapter 5, verse 15 mentions two names that are fairly significant names in the Old Testament. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah, as was Issachar, so was Barak. So these two men that we know a great deal about in their military 
abilities, she encouraged those in leadership. So the, the three of them were in this leadership cohort together. She succeeded because she exercised faith in God. When God sent the message that he was about to deliver from this mighty Canaanite army who had iron chariots, which were the, 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 the instruments of death in that day, the way the Ukraine is asking for some of the military might that they could use in, in repulsing this Russian invasion of their land, uh, Israel didn't have the capacity in the sense of those military things to go up against the iron chariots, and so they were paralyzed by the fear of the Canaanite army, the vastness of it, and Deborah was willing to say, God has and will deliver. Uh, fifthly, she reflected all the glory to God. Throughout the whole passage, particularly throughout the song, it was about the Lord's glory, that the Lord would accomplish this, that it was His doing. She saw herself as simply that vessel, and so she was humble and courageous. Sometimes we don't think those words go together. Sometimes when someone seems to be confident, we think that's kind of arrogance. But in her instance, her confidence was in the Lord's calling and not in her own ability. I know many people sit back in the pews and they never step to the front because they, they think humbly that I'm not capable of doing that. I'm not worthy of doing that. Listen, those are lies from the adversary himself. When God calls you to himself, he makes you capable. He declares you worthy. It's not about our intrinsic abilities. It's about God's ability to use any of us and all of us for his glory. Seven, she motivated the people to volunteer. We find it in chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 13, that the people responded. Go down to verse 13. Uh, then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. Leaders are never loners. You know, you ask the question, how, how do I know if I'm a leader? And the answer is, look over your shoulder. See, see if anybody's following. You see, leaders understand that it takes all of us. It takes a team working together. And, and so she celebrated the fact that the people of Israel followed her because she was the messenger from the Lord. What I love about her most, I think, is she remained faithful to the task until the end a lot of times we don't read to the end but go to chapter 5 again verse 31 let all of your enemies perish O lord let those who love him be like the rising of the sun and its might little footnote and the lamb was undisturbed for 40 years longest period of peace in the time of the judges so while we have the story of one battle that was a turning point in Israel's life we know that during the time of the judge Deborah the land was undisturbed it was at peace for 40 years so what do I take away what what should you take away today here's a statement I want you to write down God uses the ordinary the unexpected to accomplish his kingdom agenda so that he receives the greater glory for himself.
There's so many of you that just kind of are amazed at what God is doing in the life of this church. Paul and I have been members a short time, but we've just seen God's hand at work throughout this fellowship. And, and the truth is, we join because we didn't want to miss it. When God is working, I don't want to be on the sidelines. You know, I, I, I have a background in sports, and I've never seen an athlete, a true athlete, who wanted to sit on the bench. You know, it's just kind of, put me in, coach. You know, you know it's kind of like, Rudy at Notre Dame, you know, he's a walk-on, but he wants to get on the field. Now, he's too little, and he doesn't look qualified to go into that Notre Dame uniform, but the fact was he wanted to be where God, or the action was. I want to be where God's hand is. I, I want to be where the action's taking place. And when I looked through this week, as Pastor Ryan asked me to share this Sunday morning, these women of the Old Testament, they didn't kind of come up and volunteer. They simply were uh, the place where God needed an instrument, and they said, yes, Lord. All we have to do is say, yes, Lord. Who you are, whether you're male, female, married, single, divorced, whatever the consequence of your life right now, wherever you may see your life, God sees you through His own perspective. And He wants to use you for His glory. Just say, yes, Lord. As we bow together, I suspect that there's some of you who are friends or guests today who don't know Christ as your personal Savior. We would not want you to leave this service without hearing that Jesus loves you. That God loves you so much, He sent His only Son to die on the cross in your place. You say, well, I, I, I've never walked the aisle, I've never made a commitment to Christ, because I'm just not worthy. Folks, there's none of us worthy until He makes us worthy. So if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, then the Lord Jesus come into your life and begin the transformation that is a lifetime journey. If you're here as a believer and you don't have a church home, that ought to be your first priority, to be where God's people are on His kingdom mission. You say, I, I love what God's doing here, but I don't see my role in it. All you've got to do is say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You say, I, I, I'm not as gifted as so many of the people I see in that church. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. You see, Deborah was a woman who knew God's power father right now pray that your holy spirit would do that which you alone can do bring a harvest to the preaching of your word you say this is a good seed it'll never return void and so we claim that promise today you warn us that the the soil that is our heart could actually reject the seed lord don't let any of the seed fall by the wayside the adversary would love to pluck it up today there's some here contemplating a decision they need to make today and don't let them leave without knowing that that seed is a good seed. Lord, if there's a hard heart, we ask you, rip it open. Lord, if there are thorns and thistles, I, I know some of us are thinking, well, I've got to get home for mom or I've got to get out for a restaurant day. Lord, what we're dealing with here is eternal in consequence, and I pray that no thorn nor thistle would interrupt the the, the growth of the seed and let it not fall on a shallow soil but let it fall in a fertile place that would reap great harvest in jesus name amen as we stand together pastor will extend our invitation to you